So today in Truth and Fiction, we're discussing the question, and it's kind of our first episode, so I figured this is the question uh, that this whole podcast is kind of meant to address. And the question is, uh, why study art, literature, film, fiction? Like, what is the point? Is there more to it than its uh, aesthetic value, just the entertainment value of it? Well, what is the point of fiction? And so we've got Steve Hansen here and myself. Steve's an English teacher who uh, was one of my favorite and I feel like most effective teachers I've had in, in all of the limited schooling I've experienced. <laughs> and uh, and me, Josiah, you're one of your two hosts who hopefully will get to know us a little more as this journey progresses. That's awesome. That's nice of you to say those kind words too, Josiah. And I think the answer to your question is uh, an emphatic yes um, that it is that these stories are more than face value. And I think that's what I try to bring to my classroom. And what, and that's how I approach every piece of art, really, is there's the surface level, and then there's what's going on beneath the surface. I feel and, like even the, the reason we even find it entertaining is that intuitively there's some sense of meaning that gets stirred up. There's like this connecting with characters and connecting with the story. And mm-hmm. I mean, how, how else do you compel huge groups of people into aggressive fandoms, you know, if there wasn't some some deep thing it was connecting to that's a great point it's it's more than just like oh that's fun or that's cool there is a deep connection that i think it's a human connection i think it's a universal connection um that people as you said might not even be aware of and so sometimes you know when i'm working with students and working with a piece of literature it's not hard the literature does most of the work um and i can see students make connections to pieces um without a whole lot of effort with just me kind of showing them, Hey, take a look at this, or let's look at the way that this is described or what else could be going on here beyond this literal journey that this character is going on. And again, it's, it's work that young people and adults can do with a, a, you know, a limited amount of, you know, real brain power. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you mean by make connection to it? Because I mean, I, I've, everyone's, felt the experience of like when I sat down in the, in the theaters and watched the Avengers, Avengers like mm-hmm. the, there was a, a collective experience that we were all having mm-hmm. with the oohs and the ahs and the cheering at the right moments. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, <clears throat> I get that we can kind of connect to it, mm-hmm. but that, how is that more than entertainment? You know, like how, what is the utility in that going forward? Like after the fact, when it's all said and done, these stories that stay in our minds. I think ultimately, and this may be simplifying it some, but I think the best stuff is the stuff that allows us to examine ourselves and look at the things that we value and the things that scare us and the things that excite us. Um, and if we can experience that, I mean, film is a little different and you're talking about a, like thinking about a film experience, like going to see the Avengers in a movie theater, which is a wonderful experience. I think any communal experience is wonderful. It's in some gonna, layers, almost super, supercharged and oh, some way yeah. condensed and it's it, like the experience of a book and just way quicker and smaller and more mm-hmm, intense, mm-hmm. intentional, poignant. But a lot of times, you know, looking at a piece of art or, uh, reading a piece of literature is done in, in semi-isolation, at least the initial taking in of the information. Um, But when we move into film, unless you're watching it at home, um, adding that communal experience. um, So there's an experience that we have this sort of visceral reaction, but I can remember very poignantly sitting in a, in a uh, production of Hamlet in Ashland, Oregon, in a, in a, in a, the quiet of the theater. And I was sitting next to one of my students and it wasn't anything uh, dramatic that was happening. It was really just um, uh, Hamlet giving a soliloquy, which is you know sort of opening up his mind for the benefit of the audience. And you could actually feel the energy in the air that it was it was affecting me, and I could tell it was affecting. I remember her name, Caitlin, and I kind of just glanced over and just saw this a completely wrapped RAPT person just incredibly engrossed and we're and so to experience that together and we may have been experiencing and you know, hamlet was speaking to her in a way that i know she was making sense of to her mm-hmm. and hamlet was speaking to me in a way that i was making sense maybe maybe that was the same thing but the idea is that we were having this communal experience that we were experiencing this art together and it was speaking to us and helping to us to understand and that's what still, it means to be alive. <laughs> that still feels like entertainment in a lot of ways. You know, like mm-hmm. the, when we think of a, an experience that we, I feel like it's something that feels meaningful, but 
but why why is it meaningful and how is it useful and one of the way one of the things i think about as you you know you present that experience that you just talked about is <clears throat> excuse me it's memorable like um it, the w- when a story is told well in a compelling way, it sticks. It sticks mm-hmm. in our memories. Um, I, I, I can sometimes quote lines from a movie after watching it one time, right? And I, I can't even record, quote lyrics from most songs after <laughs> hearing them once. Like, I, I, my memory is really poor for certain things. But uh, to have, a, to have a, a story play out, a narrative uh, structure play out, and to, when you really buy into it, it's amazing how well that sticks. And then you, mm-hmm. you can, you can see and think about, so after the fact, what were the character's motivations? Why, mm-hmm. why did they make that choice? Was that the choice they could have made? Were there better choices they could have made? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times I think of in stories you, that, that mental, uh, dialogue that you're having as you're reading the story, you're thinking, Oh, I wouldn't do that. And you're almost cringing to sure. yourself. Yeah. And, and the author can set up these moments where you just know that a character is making a bad decision because you have a bigger picture. Right. Um, and, and I suppose if I, if I actually take the time to think about, uh, the whole, the, the picture as a whole or the story as a whole, and then, and then process through sort of subconsciously, what are the proper actions any character should be taking and why should they, why should mm-hmm. they be taking that? Why shouldn't they make that decision? Then I imagine that that is that process of deciding what is the right action uh, and working through the, the factors that play into what is a good action mm-hmm. is a process that uh, parallels a lot of my daily life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm going out, uh, trying to, well, accomplish anything. I mean, that, that's the process of making moral decisions. That is the process of ethics mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is just sort of working through in my own mind, what is the right thing to do right. in any given situation. And so if, if I'm practicing that in, in sort of in virtual world while I'm mm-hmm. reading these books and paying attention to these characters and applying critical thinking, then, then maybe that actually helps me to make better decisions in my real life. I, I think that sounds terrific. Boy, you've said so much there that I've just kept, wow, boy, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, but I'll address a couple of things that you said. So one of the things that I think happens is the engagement that we've both talked about mm-hmm. um, leads to reflection. And that reflection is often, like you said, what's going on in my life and how am I like this character? How did this character made this decision. I wouldn't have made that decision. Um, that reflection, think about how often when we see something great or hear something great, we want to share it with somebody else. We want to tell someone else about it. We don't want to, you know, it, it's important right. to us, but we want to get that out there. So, um, you know, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, so I think that that can be huge. I guess um, that's spontaneous. I mean, it's not, it's something we kind of do automatically. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, or most people do, I would imagine. I, I think really most know. people do. I, 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 do. I, I know I do as well. And I think most people do. It might, might be, maybe we're <laughs> maybe overgeneralizing a little bit, but I think that's true. The other thing that I think is hugely important in our society is this idea of self-awareness hmm. and understanding who we are. And a lot of times when we have a reaction to something in art or literature or film, which are all basically the same same thing, we could call that art, Um is, you know, why is that affecting me? Why does that make me so angry that he right. did that? Why? Does, Especially since that a, reaction is often really different person to person. Oh, sure. Like, sometimes right, it's right. the same, like in Avengers, where they've just set up the whole thing to provoke one reaction out of the whole crowd. Right, but, right, right. but yeah, I mean, that's not right. always the case. Right. What if you like Thanos? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and there are people who uh, oh, actually yeah. kind of have it think this idea is not a bad one. Right? Right. <laughs> you know? It's easy so. to sympathize with a good character, right? You're like, okay, sure. why am I let, why? am I not more opposed to him? Right. Or, you know, he does certain things where you have this visceral hatred. Right. And then there's other times where it's like, damn, that almost seems reasonable. Why why are these heroes who I admire, why are they so viscerally opposed to what he's doing? You know, those are are great questions. And that's what you mentioned earlier as well is this idea of critical thinking, which I think people are fully capable of doing and actually do it a lot more than they're aware of. Art mm. stirs that up. Art, art, you know, sort of gets in there and, and shakes things around a little bit. And we might think that we can go to a movie and then just, and we probably have seen movies that are what we would just real mindless kind of entertainment and they're fun and we don't think much about them, mm-hmm. but there are movies that stick with us. And there are, you know, and those are the ones that again, get in there and I think force us to grapple with who we are 
as mm-hmm. human beings. And that, to me, can only be positive. If we lived in a world where self-awareness was ubiquitous, um, I, I think that it would be amazing, absolutely I mean, amazing, because people do things so often without really thinking about why they're doing them right. or, or, or avoiding certain impulses. situations, understanding who I am. You know, it's probably not a good idea for me to put myself into this circumstance because I know that that gets me, you know, X or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. So self-awareness, right. I think literature and art leads to self-awareness and therein lies, you know, just one of the many values. Right. And it's way more fun than meditation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I say that flippantly. I've I've got a cousin who is <laughs> he's an incredible That's meditator, good. and and he's just he spends so much time just. And I was I've been picking his brain as to like what right. is the appeal of this yes. this belief you have, and and the, what it comes down to is being uh, being able to basically have ownership over your emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to know what your feelings are and. And acknowledge them and let them go and not be driven by by these emotions or these whims or these impulses that that get stirred up so easily, mm. um, seemingly through external sources. That's a noble goal. I, I applaud that. Um, I, I think meditation is is great for a lot of people. It's a, it's a challenge for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, <man. Yeah. laughs> but uh, it, uh, to sort of quiet the mind and I but I. I I know there's research out there. And I meditate yeah. through distraction. <laughs> <laughs> Active meditation. Yeah, right, right. right. So it's, uh, but I, I think that's great um, that so people I, can do that. I wanted to make this one comment about critical thinking because mm-hmm. because this is, you know, critical thinking is a little bit of a lost art as in this world of instant gratification, right? You scroll through Facebook and stuff comes up and, you know, everyone knows in their head that, oh, okay, everything that you finally earn at is mostly bogus. But at the same time, it still hits us, still impacts us. And I still find myself tempted to, to repost something that agrees with some bias that I have. Mm. And even though without going through the effort, because it's really effortful, like it's never been more effortful to validate a claim. Mm-hmm. You know, the even you go back 100 years before the Internet and you people were either honest or they were or, or you got... Um, disowned by your community, right? Sure. You know, like you couldn't really get by effectively without being honest because all you had were people's words. Like you had their word and that was about it. And now you can say most anything and you can find five sources to back you up. That's right. And and who knows, maybe maybe you've got a hundred sources now, but every one of those stemmed from some other false source and stemmed from some other false source. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's impossible to get to the bottom of truth. Right. And that's a big part of this podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's called truth and fiction. And we haven't really talked about that yet. But uh-huh. the what what we're here to try and do is tease out truth from what we know to be fr- fiction. You know, the the conflation of fiction with lies um, is it does a lot of damage to the genre, I think, because the reality is there's a there's this great quote. And I wish I could remember who said it, but yeah, it's it's something to the effect of I'm going to paraphrase uh, the, in fiction, they lie to you in the most truthful way. Mm-hmm. Like you can express ideas that are that are almost meta truths through a story in a way that is both compelling and convincing and memorable far more effectively than in, in some other lecture. You know, you, you get up in front of your your uh, professor, or your professor gets in front of you and starts talking to you about ethics and why you should make one decision or another. And maybe you'll remember that lecture and maybe you won't. I, based on my research from all of my friends who went to college, they don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I have a hard time remembering any lecture that really spoke to me. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I attended a lot of lectures. Uh-huh, right. And, and myself, I've attended a lot of sermons and <laughs> and I've, I've seen that have virtually no effect on the vast majority of the people I've ever talked to, even the day later. It's just painful how, how little information gets conveyed wow. in a direct manner. Haven't thought of that before, just to interrupt you very quickly, but that is very interesting to compare what you have been able to retain and keep at your fingertips from film, literature, and and art, and how the vast amount of sermons slash lectures where you've been talked to and and someone's pontificating, how little that stays. I mean, it's virtually nothing. Right. And when it does stay, when there is a really compelling, you know, pastor, for example, Mm -hmm. it's because they told a story about their life. And then the people who listen to that remember the story and most of the time don't remember what anything else about it or even what the story of the moral was unless (laughs) they were a really good teacher. (laughs) And so we 
these, the in particular fiction books and and movies, they they express truths in a memorable way, mm-hmm. and and that is both a, a feature and a bug because this is where critical thinking becomes so necessary, and this is why propaganda is so effective, right? Because propaganda is storified uh, false facts. There, there, someone with an agenda is putting out information in the in the package of a story, and mm-hmm. they're feeding it to people uh, in a way that they can rem- both remember and engage with and and buy into subconsciously and intuitively, like you do with any good story. Right. And right. yet they're feeding misinformation, mm. and that is where critical thinking and and paying attention to the, to the intuition and asking questions about the characters and what's going on and right. and and being self-reflective about whether or not you actually believe what it is they're saying mm-hmm. or what these core messages are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this podcast I want to address a lot of our sort of the most commonly accepted as good literature, good fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the universality of a work speaks something to its validity. Like mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't it doesn't it's not a some conclusive, uh, objective truth marker, just the fact that everyone agrees with it. But the fact that people agree with it over the course of decades or centuries mm-hmm. or on, on a massive scale uh, does speak to its validity one way or another. And and so most of the works we're going to address are, are works that have over time and across many, many minds and people, there, there has been engagement with it in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I hope to also touch on one or two pieces that I've come across that spoke more to me as propaganda than as good literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully we'll make those relatable as well and point out in this critical thinking process where some of the differences lie, because it can be really hard to, to see the difference. Sure can. Yeah. I like what you said about uh, propaganda sort of storified. I love that. Uh, I love that term. And that is a, that is, uh, you know, even understanding that that is a way to look at propaganda or a way to recognize propaganda um, is, is terrific. I think, I think of, you know, as you're talking about universality of, of literature and, you know, the things that have the lasting staying power. Uh, I'm not a proponent of people saying, oh, well, we, all we study is uh, dead white men. That's a, is sort of a, a common uh, <laughs> yeah, a criticism. Common, uh, criticism. So much um, of the classic literature. But the, the, the deadest and the whitest of men, Shakespeare, um, has, re, you know, retained his power, not because of his stories, which were all lifted from other sources. There's no original plots in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, everything from Romeo and Juliet to Hamlet to Macbeth, Taming of the Shrew, they all had their origins. The plot had their origins. So it wasn't the story. It's not the stories that why we continue to come back to Shakespeare. Right. It's the the humanity that he injects every one of his characters with. And if you look at, and, and I hope we will during this podcast, when we look at um, Shakespeare, and any any great actor knows this, that any line from Shakespeare, nine times out of 10, is not to advance the plot. It is to develop the character and to, uh, you know, and w- these people become incredible reflections of ourselves or people that we know. And Shakespeare's themes are big themes, um, ideas about love, ideas about jealousy, ideas about uh, ambition, ideas about obligation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, these very, very universal, you know, that that a king can understand as much as a hobo can. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, uh, I I think that's why, and and if you go to see a Shakespearean play, I mean, you you can interchange the character, it doesn't matter who plays the character. A lot of times they're, they're, uh, a <laughs> thing that's happening a lot is women are taking these sort of ma- traditionally male roles and, and, and it right. works just perfectly fine. You can change gender, you can change race. It doesn't matter. Um, when you leave the theater of, of a well-done Shakespearean play, you are moved and you, and it has spoken to you mm-hmm. um, in, oh, a, man, in a way that's lasted that's the test human. of time. Jeez. It, it's true. It's I mean, you know, I I think the, the when the last play, the last Shakespeare play that that I go to is the one that is is no good. You know what I mean? It's like it's like oh well, this is this is really bad. That's a bad play. Um, <laughs> I've seen I've seen bad performances of yeah. <laughs> of plays. Maybe I said that incorrectly, but um, I think I use that with a lot of bands that I go to see. Like mm. uh, and people say, "Well, you're going to see that band all the time." You know, we, we, why, you've seen them for t- sometimes twenty years. I've been going to see these guys. They're old, and you know, 
why do you go see them? And I said, well, that's where I think I was thinking of. I, mm-hmm. say, I say, well, the last time I go see them is when it's, I have a bad experience. Yeah. Then I won't go see them anymore. But every time I go, I have a wonderful time. And, uh-huh, <laughs> and exactly. so, uh, so I'm still waiting for the, the bad time that, that, that happens. Maybe I, gotta, maybe I didn't apply that as well to the, the theater piece I was talking about. But I think what I was getting at was that there is a universality in Shakespeare and, and right. many, many other authors right. too. I mean, uh, if, I suspect that the Avengers canon, I mean, obviously the superhero genre has been around for several decades now, mm-hmm. uh, and it's only become more popular in this, in our current world, you know, in a world where having superpowers has never seemed so attainable. And in many yeah. ways people do in their own ways, but, but, you know, you go back in, in, go back several decades into a world that was much more simple. It still was compelling, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to have that lasting power through through the most dramatic changes in social structure and technology and all this and to still have these characters i i suspect they will keep lasting <laughs> I, I suspect they will as well um we have you know we have changed a great deal as human beings mm-hmm. um but at the same time, we have not changed right. a great deal. So yeah, evolution's so. a many million year process. And <laughs> right. The fact that our, our society itself has not been around for very long right. in light of that <laughs> time span. Shakespeare wrote a whole play about sexual jealousy. Othello is a play mm. just about that. And when we look at how many you know, not to get too dark here, but how many crimes are committed and oh, how many man. things that, that how, how much social unrest is caught co- is caused by sexual jealousy. Right. Um, you know, you know, I've people, heard you know. partner on partner, uh, violence is more prevalent than all other categories of violence combined. Yes, I've heard that as well. Like that's a crazy statistic. Oh. Someone have to fact check me there, but that's, you know, that's right, one right. of the things I was told. Right. So in the 1600s, we're still dealing with this issue of, <laughs> We haven't uh, figured uh, it out uh, yet. Are you <laughs> kidding me? We haven't solved that problem. So uh, you know, but but he'll shine a light on it, and yeah. and people will, uh, people relate to the victim in uh, Othello, who is yeah. a, an innocent woman who's you know basically accused of being um, sexually promiscuous by someone who has something to gain um, by. Um, by doing that, and uh, that never our... happens anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so Othello, although it is an absolute tragedy, and mm-hmm. you you do leave the theater um, feeling moved in a way that's whew, that's powerful, and sometimes it's it's difficult because in tragedies people die. Right. And the nice thing about fiction is they're they're characters, so nobody really dies. Right. Um, so amazing. The okay, character dies. It's an amazing capacity that we as humans have to uh, abstract ourselves into a virtual avatar and allow it to play out bad decisions for us mm-hmm. so that we don't have to. Oh, I think it's wonderful. You talked about what would be some of the utility of literature. Mm-hmm. I would much rather read about, and there's a very popular young adult book right now called Looking for Alaska, which deals with a, a, a death from a drunk driving oh, episode, wow. yeah, which is a horrible tragedy that I don't want to ever have to deal with or live with. Um, but I can, I can get the I can live it vicariously by reading this novel and feel all the well, maybe not all, but I can yeah. feel the emotion and the and the pain and the and the and and maybe a little bit of hope in there too. If you know, depending on what happens, I can experience all of that, and I'm relatively uh, unscathed. Right? You know what yeah, I mean, you, I can. You, come uh, out, you get to have all the benefits of someone else's failure. Right. I mean, that's the nature of evolution and and progress as a whole mm-hmm. is that. Um, we really only progress through elimination. <laughs> like right, right. most anything new that shows up uh, only progresses humanity by its by us realizing it was a bad idea. <laughs> there you go. I, absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the vast majority of good good progress happens that way. Well, I, uh, Aristotle talks about that as this idea of, uh, and he speaks he's speaking specifically about tragedy, but mm. he talks about just what we're talking about, and he talks about catharsis that this allows us to, right. which is a sort of a cleansing. You know what I mean? So we have these these anxieties, these worries. We're able to watch it played out in front of us, and it allows us to sort of purge ourselves of those feelings. That's a very over over simple, right. very simple uh, uh, summary of Aristotle's. Uh, point on that yeah. point but uh right. but, but there's it's, something to it's that there. there's something to that to the even the experiencing of a strongly negative emotion that uh provides some some release like some right. there, there's a growth that happens that is intrinsically valuable even right. though it was almost entirely tied to a painful emotion well the part that 
I think we're in complete agreement on this, Josiah, but I want to point out something that is a little scary, and that is that there are people who don't want you to experience that, that mm. they don't want you to read Experience negative emotion, about, you mean? Right. Well, maybe not, you know, well, you've heard of things like triggers and things like that. Right. So it's not good. You shouldn't read about a drunk driving thing. That's going to stir up all kinds of emotions that you're going to have trouble processing. It might or be traumatizing. It might be traumatizing. Um, it could be, you know, I used to teach a book and I haven't taught it for a while, but it's a, it's a German book called All Quiet on the Western Front by well, yeah. Eric Maria Remarque. Uh, we went through that one. Yeah, terribly violent. Um, images of, of graphic violence. Oh, but guess gosh. what? That's what war is or was, which was worse then when they were, you know, didn't have some of the, uh, you know, medical things that we have now. But anyway, the 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 novel is is disturbing and. It, it, and I had a, and it sounded kind of flippant when it came out when I when I was talking to a parent, but she was very upset that her kid was reading this novel, and said she was really bothered by it and really perturbed by the violence. And I said, well, I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because if it, I mean, think about it this way: if it doesn't bother you, what does that say about you? Right, right. And then if it so, does bother you, then then awesome because. I, Better to have been bothered by something that was virtual in your own right, mind right. to it, help remind right. you that actually the chaos of war is not a good thing. Right, right. I, I hear right. this song. There's a song on the radio that's super popular, and one of the one of the main hooks or the in the or the, it was in the chorus is we're going to burn this whole thing down. And, uh-huh. and I just yeah. think you've never you don't know you don't have any idea what it's like to be in a place where everything is burning down. Like mm-hmm. you've not lived through uh, the 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 Paris um, the French Revolution mm-hmm. when that's exactly what they did the the population rose up and and beheaded the government and you know what happened chaos yeah. thousands of people died it was it was hell on earth and then a new dictator took it took their place mm-hmm. like it did not result in what they wanted to right. it was not progress mm-hmm. it was it was huge amounts of carnage and hell and and if these people had a, a better grasp of the literature of, of even the stories around these things mm-hmm. fiction or not i mean all quiet is is one of those uh kind of borders on on the fiction line because it's mm-hmm. very much based on real events and experiences yes. mm-hmm. i mean nothing in there was uncommon and so yes while it is a, a fictitious story any soldier could have could have told you about half of those things that took place right right you know and that's and that's part of the beauty of it It, yeah it's meta true oh yeah it's it's yeah i was thinking too boy i I didn't really even think about bringing up all quiet but i was thinking about in his prologue and i'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit but it just says that uh that it's not a celebration of war it's not meant to say how noble it is he said it's it's about how that even the people who escaped the shells were still scarred by war. Right. And I'm like, well, I mean, I mean, we know the we damage know that, that PTSD More so has now done. Than ever. Oh yeah. And another thing I wanted to point out about all quiet is at one point I had a, uh, a Vietnam vet who wanted to share his experiences in Vietnam. And I think he felt compelled to share his stories and hopefully maybe, you know, let young people know about this this event in our history and their history, and maybe understand it a little bit more. And he wanted to bring in some, um, he wanted to bring in some, uh, for lack of a better word, props. You know, from the from that era that mm-hmm. he, you know, and, and so I, I was totally fine. I thought it sounded like a great idea, and we were reading All Quiet at the time. And he said, "Do you th- do you have a copy of that that I could read?" And I said, "Sure." And he actually read it. In the, in the weeks leading up to him coming to visit oh, us. Before coming. Yeah. And he told me later, and I always oh, remember this, he said, this is incredible. This is exactly my experiences. Wow. The things that are going through here in World War I are the things that I experienced in, Viet- in the Vietnam War. Wow. Um, with just, you know, with, and it was very, and so for him to be able to speak about his Vietnam experience and then use all quiet mm-hmm. as sort of support for what his what his argument was right. it was incredibly powerful so i remember that day in the in the uh in our theater where he came to speak well and speaking um, to the, the utility of of that knowledge and preserving that knowledge and passing it on we're at a time right now where there has no there has been no huge collective global war that uh, has escaped that that the media is involved in and you know like there there hasn't been one in, in decades that was the, the Vietnam War is kind of the last time where the media has been able to be right on the ground filming stuff right in the middle of it 
ever since then, we the government's realized, of course, that that it does such horrible things for the morale. They can't allow that to happen. Right, so there've been right. some skirmishes. There've been some small scale, uh, you know, nation on nation fighting. But there hasn't been this all out uh, global war for a long time. Yeah. And and the reality is the stakes are so high now that mm-hmm. unless we can preserve the knowledge of how terrible that those wars are yes. if we ever if we ever slip back into that and, right. and when that ever right. becomes acceptable again it likely will be the end of humanity like that is an oh, existential yeah. risk yeah. I, I i agree with you completely we're more at risk now oh. for a global nuclear holocaust than they were in the cold war oh yeah There's, absolutely it's unreal and, yeah and so you know the idea of dehumanizing the enemy and yep. and classic propaganda the, the, right. Right, these these kinds of things. You're right. They, and, 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 and that's another great argument about, well, let's read All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's <laughs> you know? know these stories. Let's pay attention. Let's yeah. do the critical I mean, this thinking. is, right, right. Um, so I think that that mom, bless her, was really just trying to protect her daughter from pain and, and uh, any kind of uncomfortable feelings, which is a very natural uh, thing for a parent natural, to do. Yeah, um, instinct. But at the same time, those that's the kind of edification that that human beings need, I think, is to be uncomfortable and to sit with that for a little bit. And and and, and in the case of All Quiet, it's very clear why that makes one uncomfortable. Um, but like you said, we don't want to go there. And that's why Remarque right. wrote that. I mean, I, we don't want to, you know, I don't ever want you to think that war is an option. And Please don't think of this English as an teachers option. teachers have to make you do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Remarque is more inclined to say, please don't let this happen again. Right, right. Please don't let this happen again. Yeah. Um, you can see the utter destruction um, mm-hmm. that happens. Um, yeah, I get I, I get excited when I start te- talking about these books and then I think, oh yeah, I think I'll do that one again, you know, and mm-hmm. So it's interesting, though. We have, we we're in a culture now, and I've been teaching English for almost thirty years. And Josiah, when you were my student, there was a, um, and I would just say this as a blanket statement: students were much more likely to read what you asked them to read. Huh. Um, that must have stopped the next year because no one read the books <laughs> junior year. <laughs> I think it's because they well, gave him Moby Dick over the summer, oh, yeah, and they getting, got they got right can, to that part where he spends about four right. chapters talking about oh, whaling, gosh, and no yeah, one yeah. cares. Oh, you can kill a book very easily. <laughs> you can kill a book. I'm I'm guilty of killing a couple of myself, I think. But there there is uh, you can hook kids and excite kids about literature, and there's lots of different ideas and ways to do that. A lot of it has to do with what we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, connecting, and you know right. that as a natural. I always think of Josiah as a natural educator, um, but. You have to have a connection point, a point where like, yeah. why, 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 why should I care about To Kill a Mockingbird or why should I care about The Catcher in the Rye? Um, so I can often provide those things, but there is still the act of reading. Um, yeah, and that's that tough. Is a, it's not super accessible. A, no. And if you think about 20 years ago, um, there were far fewer uh, options right. you know, that you had. So mm-hmm. you, you, know, you, you were assigned to read 20 pages. Yeah, you know, I look at that and say, okay, well, it's not that's not so bad. You know, it'll take you, you know, what at the most an hour, you know, maybe well, maybe lucky. longer. So this is funny. Me and my older sister were in the same class. Uh-huh. And uh Krista always got better grades than me because she cared more. <laughs> right. But but if we sat down to read, uh-huh. I would be done half as fast. Uh-huh. Like I had way less time and my comprehension was better. And it was just lucky. Mm. Like we're just mm-hmm. just by yeah. sheer genetic lottery. Right. I was a better reader. Yeah. And and I think, okay, if I had a, I looked at everyone else in the class, there might have been two other people in the class who could read as fast or faster than I right. could. And and we were at a pretty advanced class. I don't read anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, yeah. I just, I don't have the time. I don't want to focus on a book. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. Audible has been the greatest Audible thing is, that is, has happened. Audible is a great thing. Oh my gosh. I think it's a, I think that it, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. You, yeah. Let me see. Because um, <laughs> I, I certainly think that Audible is really great. Right. Um, I will say this. If we on Audible and audiobooks in general, um, there, I think that you run – well, maybe I, I don't know. What do you say, miss uh, out on? What do you miss out I, on I was, when you're not I, reading I, it? I don't, know if, I don't know if you miss out on it. I don't know if you miss out on it. But I feel like it, you run the risk of, of – um, focusing more on plot. I don't know why I think that. I feel like that if you're listening to a story, you're just trying to figure out what happened in chapter one. They went to the village. They met the uh, the mm. guide. Um, I think that you might miss some of the nuances because, you know, typically if I'm 
listening to something, and I haven't listened to a lot of, no, I've listened to a fair amount of fiction on audio, usually on long trips and things like that. Um, But I find myself distracted because I'm driving and and someone cuts in front of me or something. Now, I'm the kind of person I'm going to rewind it and go back, but other people just going to keep on going. So there's a, I feel like there may be. Yeah, you can um, miss little details. There could be some, yeah, yeah. Any good author, every single sentence has a purpose. But you run into the same thing with reading, and every right. every reader has experienced that I, that thing that happens when you read, and then you turn the page, and you read maybe even a little bit more, and then you <laughs> stop and say, I don't even know what I've just read. Yeah. And young people, oftentimes, this is a generalization, but young people will just keep going. <laughs> you know, right. So they're just, 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 oh, that's just a gap in my understanding. Or they're just saying, I just want to get through this. Right. Another uh, other readers will go back, mm-hmm. turn the pages backwards, and go. Now where did I, okay? This is where I kind of lost it and kind of. And a lot of authors, there's enough repetition to where some of those details that you need to catch right. get reiterated. This is true. You yeah. know, and so long as you didn't miss something super critical, right. then it, it's okay. I, I find that in nonfiction a lot that the main points mm-hmm. are made early on and then just early reemphasized. Yeah. You know, throughout the throughout the text, which right. is one of the reasons why I get I, I have a harder time with with. Um, with nonfiction. Um, so I was going back to this issue of students having a challenging time reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was mentioning the distractions that are there. Reading is, you know, the, the act of reading to me is delayed gratification personified. I mean, it is, I have to put in the time. I'm not going to get any of this information unless I do the mental work it's going to take to get from page one to page 20. And the things that are happening in my brain as I'm reading, the visualization of mm-hmm. the setting and the right, characters, right. Uh, the slowly. engagement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's work. Mm-hmm. It's not passive. Right. Re- reading is a, a very, very active. Good reading is right. a very, you can, anyone can read passively. And I've read things passively, and I'm sure you have too, mm-hmm. where you're just, yeah, it's about this, you know, and you sort of spout off some, you know, one sentence summary of 20 pages, you know, right. but, um, but, True reading, a, tr- a true engagement is uh, something else entirely. Yeah, and, there's and, like and, layers that you can you can be engaged at all sorts of different levels. Mm-hmm. You, you can be, uh, I mean, as with studying anything, my Morehouse used to, one of my, the history teachers, he would say, you can know something an inch deep and a mile wide, or you can know it a mile deep and an inch wide. Right, and right. And there's, uh, what you get out of it is often a function of what you put into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, re- so reading is, you know, so, so now you think about, you know, my children play a lot of video games, um, a lot of them. And so do many, many kids. Um, it, the, it, it, they're very popular. And I do not argue that they look and sound and are extraordinarily cool very and engaging. require a lot less of me than reading does. Mm-hmm. So it also, you know, video Almost games, super passive, <laughs> super passive um, but with the semblance of engagement, right? right. <laughs> you know, you feel more engaged. Yeah, you're you're doing something, so you're not like you're, you're, you don't feel like you're passive. You know, I would, my kids would never say when they're playing Halo or Sea of Thieves that they're passive. They're definitely active in it, but but it's almost like an autopilot kind of thing for me. I sort of see it as. Right. But but what I'm saying is that there are. You know, and then there are like the games that just are on the phone and, you know, like a little solitaire game or a little Tetris game or a bubble popping game or Candy right. Crush or something pure like that, which is just pure, pure distraction, engagement but distraction. it is, but it is the semblance of action. You right. know what I mean? So, so they're so accessible. Yeah. accessible and easy and much more fun. I get it. It's not like I'm trying to fight against this thing and say, oh, you know, we got to stop that. Then they need to be, you know, but you know, what's, what's, what's suffering is this lack of reading. Yeah. I think what, what results of that, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, it's called activation energy is so high. You know, the, 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 the barriers to entry of re- good reading are so high. Um, and what's happening, I think, as a result of that is there is a, a severe lack of this self-awareness, like you were talking about, right. this ability to do critical thinking, mm-hmm. this uh, ability to analyze your own morals, to to understand the ethics of your daily life and the ethics of things going on. Mm-hmm. I, I read what people say on Facebook um, and on Twitter and whatnot, and and I see over and over again these huge errors, huge uh, mm-hmm. holes in their thinking. And I think a lot of that does stem from 
a poor intuitive understanding of ethics yeah. and of how the world works. Like what does it sure. mean to be human mm -hmm. and not just me, myself, me, what myself. I feel, right. but what does it mean to be a human engaged in a collective experience of life with humanity in a time when the world has never been so connected? Right. Like, it's it's more critical than ever that we understand a, a, a more broad perspective of engaging with humanity and to be able to to really dig into these works of literature that have universal appeal mm -hmm. should speak to that like it, it should. should help it should yeah. our, help people's engagement in the world in a way that would be hard to get otherwise right. that's just it and i think this is kind of one of the key points i want to make about art in general, like art and especially the universally accepted as significant art is, is one of the only ways that people really grow to learn and uh, about what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it's so, you know, yes, there's, uh, evolutionary biologists that can speak to the science behind maybe why we do certain things. And that, that can be helpful to certain people. It's like, okay, I have a better understanding of why, uh, let's just say obesity is such a problem right now when you're, uh, born to a stressful mom, you know, mm -hmm. there's some really mm -hmm. interesting research behind that. Okay. So I can have more sympathy because I understand why, but most people won't get there. But, but art is so accessible and fiction is so accessible and that, and that these stories, they they present these meta truths in, within the narrative and people can engage with them and they can actually it can actually shape how they make their choices yeah, like yeah. they can be more become more compassionate they can be more averse to certain types of action you know if they uh if they read all quiet or, or animal farm for example mm -hmm. like uh i was actually just watching on netflix this uh, movie called mr jones that talked about a a, a journalist i think it was a, it was actually a true story or a, a what do they call it? Dramatization of a true story where this journalist went to Russia to try and uh, Soviet Union when it was bef right before they had actually been acknowledged by the US to try and see what was really going on there. And he shows up in Moscow and Moscow is this busy, bustling, cosmopolitan, modern city where everything seems fine. And then, you know, of course, he gets on a bus on a train with someone who's supposed to show him around the countryside. And he, he suspects that he's not that he's only being shown the tip of the iceberg. So he manages to, to shake his uh, escort <laughs> and he gets on some other train with a bunch of other people and the first scene on this train you see him pulling out some snacks out of his bag and he throws aside this orange peel after you know getting his orange out and six people around the bus all jump on the orange peel and he's like whoa <laughs> whoa these people are not fine and of course he gets off and goes through the countryside and there's people starving and little kids are cannibalizing their family wow. and, like it's just the most the most stark contrast to what is going on what they're the front they're trying to show wow and yeah. and he gets the story and by some miracle gets back to the states and is trying to tell this story and all the all the propaganda machine is contradicting him but he just he is torn apart on the inside right, right. about the reality of what was going on you know, and so that sounds terrific, <laughs> right? Oh, it was a really compelling story. Yeah. But, but Animal Farm as a book, which is a totally fictitious story, it's about a bunch of animals. Mm -hmm. If if we could learn and and study this and understand the the truth of what is being spoken in this, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's one of the more uh, allegorical books you read. Very I mean, it's yeah. obviously yeah. meant to. Per it's it's like it's like propaganda. Allegories feel like propaganda, mm -hmm. um, but. But the truth of it is there, and we know it's true because we've actually seen it play out. Right. And and right. the Soviet Union and, and these Marxist ideas have played out. Mm -hmm. You know, the 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 morals of the pigs in that book. Oh, sorry. It's <coughs> gonna ruin stuff here. Oh, no worries. <coughs> sorry. Okay. So the morals of the pigs in that story have played out. Their ethical decisions have had a chance to play out on the world stage, and we know it doesn't work. But right. but we've got this huge groundswelling <laughs> uh, group of the population who is very sympathetic to the Marxist ideas mm -hmm. and, and very sympathetic to communism. And and if you ask college students which they think was worth communism or um, Nazism, you know, they'll they'll tell you, oh, Nazis by far, you know, obviously. Right. But the reality is the communists killed more people by a by a factor of ten. <laughs> you know? Wow. Like it's it's not even close. Right. You know, uh, Mao and and Stalin murdered huge percentages of their population. It's insane. And yet yeah. and and yet people don't know. They don't realize it. 
well, they could. Yeah. Well, that's it's actually that's a great you know young people. Well, I think that book was on our list for a long time for for sophomores. So you're about mm-hmm. 15, 16 years old. And the, you know, and I always used to start off by saying, you know, in theory, communism sounds great. You know, we all work hard. We all share in the benefits. Right. We're we're communal. It even comes from, you know, this idea of community. Right. And who doesn't like that? You know, who but what Marx didn't take into consideration and what Orwell exploits in the novel is that, that there's a human element to that. There is, uh. The, there's the piece of the person who's going to, there's going to be the person who doesn't want to work, um, that, that, that would l- rather just not do anything. Right. There's going to be the person who really only wants to work because he or she wants to be the very, very best. Right. And, and I don't want to break it down that too far because that might be one of the books we go through. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a, but I'm, know, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a metaphor. This book yeah. is this, and it's a more of a, I mean, it's actually probably more of a, synonym almost but it's, a, it's a pure allegory yeah That's pure the, allegory of the, of the yeah of the russian revolution and art yeah. is metaphors like art uh-huh. is symbolism and metaphor and uh the idea that okay any any work of literature can be interpreted in an infinite number of ways is uh you know that that's kind of another more modern idea is like okay there is no absolute truth because you can interpret anything anyway mm-hmm. but one of the things we're going to try to do in this podcast is actually interpret art and literature right and and break it down to our own uh satisfaction but but i don't want to i don't want to give you guys the impression that there are no because there are a million interpretations there no one is valid because that's just not true the mm-hmm. reality is there are valid interpretations there are ways to interpret things that are flat wrong. Mm-hmm. And and the way that I'm going to sort of approach it and, and we're going to kind of approach this is, is a bit of a pragmatic um, analysis because my, my, um, my judge of when an interpretation is wrong is when it doesn't work. It doesn't, it's, it functionally makes things worse. So it, why would an artist produce something designed to make the world worse? You know, like I, right, that right. I'm, I'm under the assumption that these great works were done by people who were generally trying to improve the world one way or another. You know, like they, they're good hearted people in some sense who, who feel compelled, uh, by, by their sense of their own morality to, to produce something of value, whether mm-hmm. that's explaining how things could go bad or demonstrating how things might be mm-hmm. better or one way or another, they're using this, this metaphorical language of art, mm-hmm. uh, to, to bring about positive knowledge, like knowledge for, for the, for the better of mankind. So if, if I interpret something in a way that produces a horrible <laughs> effect, then it's probably wrong. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. it, and if I can interpret something in a way that creates value and creates, uh, that aligns with that sort of intuitive moral sense because most people have that. Most people have some sense of what is good and what is not. I it, agree. It's not it's not universally consistent, but I don't know anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't have some sense of, of something that is good or wrong. I, I'm, I'm listening to that and I'm using that as my guide along with this interpretation and, and hopefully with some feedback through this podcast and, mm-hmm. and a lot of engagement, you know, I, I'm going to actually try to try to bring out interpretations that are valid mm-hmm. on the grounds that they they produce positive outcomes. I think that's a great it's a great premise. I, it's interesting to think of uh, you know what we call in literature authorial intent. You know, what mm. is the reason why this person uh, right. wrote this piece of, of it's literature? Certainly hard to know, and uh, it is hard to know. Um, there's something that I hope we get to explore later on in uh, the podcast. And one of the th- coolest things that I've been able to do as a, as, a, as a student of literature is I mentioned earlier about Shakespeare's, um, Shakespeare's sources and that none of his stories are original. Well, there's an original version of Hamlet that, that exists. Oh. Right? It's, uh, it, it's, it's fragmented, but it's, you know, the story's there and it's, and it's pretty, pretty, pretty well intact. What you can do is you can lay Shakespeare's Hamlet side by side with that Hamlet and look at what he omitted and what he changed. And then you get very close to authorial intent because he's decided for a reason to make this character do this instead of that. Right, you can kind of deduce Or he stayed with that 
character that way and only adjusted this, or he cut this thing entirely. Mm -hmm. So you really get this... Uh, it, it, you can do it with uh, other uh, Renaissance literature as well. Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus has a similar source oh, okay. uh, where he varies. Sometimes he stays right with that source and other times he varies dramatically. Hmm. And where he varies dramatically is where you can find out what his, and I, I'll put this in quotation marks, intentions were. Right. Um, but I think we get very, very close to that. At other times, and we'll see this during the podcast too, and Josiah and I have talked about this, is that it can often be a distraction to try to locate the author in a piece of literature or to locate um, uh, the artist within the sculpture or something right. like that. You know, where, where is this artist's politics coming from? Or, well, I heard that he or she is this kind of person. And is that yeah. in this piece of art? You know, and, and that can be... I think can that be can be, it can be a distraction. I can, it can be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. It's one of my least exciting things to do. There I think is. especially in like, uh, with, with the more visual arts, like sculpture. Mm -hmm. So like, I think of Michelangelo and the statue of David. It's like, okay, uh, if I try and go back to the context of Michelangelo during this time when the Catholic church was pretty much dom the dominant force mm -hmm. in the nation and he produces this, okay, so it's a biblical character. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it's, if you go if you go work way down into it, you can get this story of a patriarchy, I suppose, if you want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, if you take it out of that entirely and you put some eight-year-old in front of that statue and let him look up on it, like me when I was eight, looking right, up at the right. statue of David. Right. And and there is this almost goosebump sense of oh, awe. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and there's this there's this engagement that happens that okay, hold on. I'm looking at this thing that is majestic right. and carved in stone and has yeah. lasted for thousands of years. Yeah. Someone dedicated a huge percentage of their life to produce this one thing that yeah. would stand the testament of time as this icon of strength and honor and, and stability and, and humility. I mean, he's this great king, and yet he's standing here naked with a sling over yeah. his shoulder. Yeah. You know, like it, it, the one of the most iconic characters in the most uh, long-lasting book of literature of all time, and and he's standing here holding what is essentially the poor man's right. weapon. Yeah. You know, someone too poor to even have a spear. When you know the yeah. spearmen were your throwaway soldiers, like yeah. And and yet that's that's with this icon that was created. Right. And, and so it's like you don't need uh, anything else. No, I'm far more interested in the goosebumps, right, than right. I am with the, uh, <laughs> the than than the politics of Michelangelo. You and know, it the, speaks uh, to the truth of it. Yeah, it and that's and so when we're talking about truth, I think that's where we're not looking at what you know what's the what's the moral that the author or artist intended, or what's the right. reaction. And uh, I think it it is many. I think many times that an author does have an intent, um, but I I think that there are there are Authors and artists who are, you know, maybe, oh, how can I say this? Well, I'm thinking of someone like, like Roman Polanski, who is an incredible director who's made some really poor life choices huh. um, and, and, you know, bad stuff. Right, right. A Weinstein <laughs> uh, type guy. Uh, huh? Yeah, yeah. Weinstein. <laughs> I don't know if I want to go in Weinstein in this one too, but I guess what I'm saying is there are. There can be authors oh, gotcha. and artists who are not perfect human beings. Oh, right. Obviously, um, yes. And, and so, again, that's where we don't want to, I don't want to get into an exploration of the like the author <sighs> right. and what he or We're she is. We're kind of separating the art We're, from the artist right, in, in this right. exploration. And, and, and I think you can find truth, the way that we're defining truth, you know, without looking at, you know, um, totally. Some of the controversy that might surround, um, mm -hmm. you know, someone like Orson Scott Card. We mentioned him right. the other day. Our has... acceptance of their art and what they've produced is not some uh, universal agreement with all of the authors' with the, views. With the artist, right? right, right yeah, right. we're not. That, I can, I can, not I can love the art and hate the artist. Right, that's a good point to make because yeah. in this world where you, if you even associate with the wrong person, you right, can get, right, you know, yeah, no, cut that's down it. at the knees. Yes, online. No, that's a that's rough. I mean, we we are in, and I know that I, I read about it every day almost that we are probably the most divided that we have been in a long time. There was a time when we could have different political beliefs, and you and I could 
could still have dinner together or go have a beer together uh, and 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 talk about many of the things that we do agree with and yeah. we, do, we do have in common. The and, funny thing and is now people still do that in person. They just can't mm-hmm. do it online for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm heart, uh, it's heartening to hear that people are doing it in person. I, 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 I have... Despite COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some friends that we do have p- different political beliefs and we do do just what you said. We do, right. we do find the things. We don't focus on those things. you're not and, dehumanizing and each other when argue. you're sitting there face to face with them having dinner. Right, it's right. like you can't help there's but a, see that they're just a person and they're there, nuanced. There's so much more, and this sounds almost cliche, but there's so much more that we share in common. There's so much more common, so many more threads that we share in common with our fellow beings Absolutely. than there are the differences that divide us. But boy, I have noticed it in recent years, the, the focus on the, and the divisiveness and the, the lack of, you know what you, I don't like that person's opinion, but and so I'm going to reject them entirely. I'm going to reject them entirely. That is incredibly Ugh, dangerous. It is. I, I, I really fear that. And that's where, again, that's why I'm interested in talking about, literature and using this podcast as a vehicle to try to get people to understand that these stories and these pieces of art speak to inclusivity and then the the universality and the things that we share. Oh yeah. They're not about like, hey, this is this is such a great book that only I would like it, you know. And right, it, right. You know, it, it, it's like no well, we, that's we a- universally admire these heroes and many of them we admire them because they're nuanced, because they've got right. like blatant flaws. I think of that movie Deadpool that came out recently, right? Uh-huh. Like it's one of the <laughs> the the highest grossing R rated movies <laughs> right. of all time. Yeah. And and the guy Deadpool is just he is not a good person. Not not a good person. No, no, no by any means. But we can admire some of the decisions he makes and right, the choices right. he makes, and we can sympathize. He's the kind of guy uh-huh. who's you can. Everyone looks at him and says, "Not a good guy." But I'd probably have drinks with him at the bar if I had the chance. You know, like you can well, appreciate he's also, that. You know, he's bit. also been. You know, he he's been had. You know what right. I mean? He was he was oh, manipulated, yeah. mm-hmm. and he's been ripped off, um, which. That's the point of entry for a lot of people. That right. that's you know, like I have. I can too. relate to that. I have too. Right. Either by uh, you know, I'm a little a bit bitter about or it, or my parents, <laughs> or you know, I, I get right. it. I get when someone promises you something and doesn't deliver. Right. I understand that, and, or and I the get anger when, that can come when when I'm ready to die and willing to just die and would rather die because of my circumstances, and yet I have a love that would motivate me to do anything there to you prove, go. to to, to a- fight. Absolutely. You know, like yeah. that's a that's a compelling. Right, right, and and that doesn't, and those that's the truth that we're talking about. Right, not we're not talking about whether Deadpool's a good guy. Right, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, that's the it's the meta truth. I agree completely. I I wrote this paragraph, and I'm and I kind of want to read it because I'm a little bit proud of it, and I don't do much writing, and. Uh, Steve, you can uh, harass me for my grammar <laughs> as I go through. Oh, you it. can be sure I will. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but but I feel like this summed up a lot of what a lot of what makes um, studying fiction useful uh, in in a fairly simple way, right? So it, it's this: uh, ideas presented in literature are, are unarticulated insights into humanity. The older and more universally valued the art, often the deeper and the more universally significant the insights. These bits of truth can help inform individuals' view of the world and the social structures that make it up. The actions of characters and the reader's intuitive admiration or repulsion of those actions can serve as a guide toward a life of meaning and significance. People universally admire heroes. People universally despise villains. By studying great stories, one can learn what makes for a hero and a villain and everything in between. And if that knowledge is properly internalized and processed, it can serve to direct one's life decisions um, and that makes it a worthwhile pursuit. One can live a thousand lifetimes and learn from a thousand mistakes from the safety of one's own mind if the process of critical thinking and internalization is practiced while consuming these stories. I think that's brilliant. I just had a really great English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I won't take credit for that. That's actually that actually sums up in a beautiful way. I, that's I, I mean I'm not getting hyperbolic here w- w- with my praise. That's I think that's beautifully written, and I think that's. And I, you know, to, to sum it up really, you know, <laughs> tritely, my sentiments exactly. I mean, that I, I can agree with everything that you just read. And I think that is a wonderful tagline. Or, you know, if someone says, what's this podcast about? There it is right yeah, there. That's, that's that is what we're it. trying to get into. And, and I think that the great thing about this is that Josiah and I both wholeheartedly agree with what he just read. 
um, that that is that I will hang my hat on that. that and I'm I will, hoping that some that of you I guys will, uh, you know, agree as well, and hopefully you can engage with right. some of this literature in a new way. Oh yeah, you know, we're gonna we're gonna address uh, fiction that is fairly popular. Uh, it's all fairly accessible. I'm, I'm, we're gonna try and stick to things that you can you can find readily at any bookstore or mm-hmm. or any anywhere you find your videos, uh, so you can read along. We'll try and produce a little bit of a schedule so you know what we're gonna get to ahead of time, and you can brush up on it. Um, and, and I'm really excited to dig into this. And oh, I am too. Explore humanity. And, and, you know, hopefully if we get the, uh, listeners that, that latch on to what we, what we hope is a worthwhile endeavor that, you know, listeners can share with us pieces of literature and pieces of art that have, that, that they feel fits that sort of criteria that yeah, we're talking about. Because why it's significant I, I, I learn a lot, you know, one of the most explosive genres of literature right now is young adult fiction yeah uh there's a content explosion similar to what's happening on the on netflix and hulu and things like that and, mm-hmm. and amazon prime uh, a glut of content there's yeah. so much out there it's never been so, more accessible to right to publish so young adult fiction is huge and i mentioned earlier that that book looking for alaska mm-hmm. that came from a student oh really uh, that, that told me hey you should read this book it's really pretty good <laughs> um and that's wonderful talk about shared humanity that's that's right. you know hey i think this would speak to you too mr hansen yep. i'm i'm 14 but <laughs> i think it'll speak to you too yep. as 52 <laughs> yeah so, so uh, we hope that this podcast yeah. will speak to a lot of you guys uh stimulate that that intellectual side of your brain a little bit and uh, hopefully provide some useful insights to guide your your daily ethical decisions um because because god only knows how the, the world that we live in right now and and what it's going to take to uh, to redeem it, I suppose, to, to move it forward. You know, progress is, is a difficult process and it doesn't happen uh, by people being mediocre. It doesn't happen by people making poor ethical decisions. Like progress will only happen by people attaining to the best that they can be. And, and a part of that is knowing, you know, where they sit in humanity and, and what it means to be a hero. And so may this podcast be uh, be more of an inspiration to to you to be a hero in your own world and in your own little circles. Very well put. I'm happy to be part of it. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Catch you guys next week. This is Truth and Fiction, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. Take care.